Chapter 7 of Hereditary Genius by Francis Galton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 7 Statesmen. I propose in this chapter to discuss the relationships of modern English statesmen. It is my earnest desire throughout this book to steer safely between two dangers, on the one hand, of accepting mere official position or notoriety with a more discriminative reputation, and on the other, of an unconscious bias towards facts most favourable to my argument. In order to guard against the latter danger, I employ groups of names selected by others, and to guard against the former, I adopt selections that command general confidence. It is especially important in dealing with statesmen whose eminence as such is largely affected by the accident of social position to be cautious in both these respects. It would not be a judicious plan to take for our select list the names of privy councillors or even of cabinet ministers, for though some of them are illustriously gifted, and many are eminently so, yet others belong to a decidedly lower natural grade. For instance, it seemed in late years to have become a mere incident to the position of a great territorial duke to have a seat in the cabinet as a minister of the crown. No doubt some few of the dukes are highly gifted, but it may be affirmed with equal assurance that the abilities of the large majority are very far indeed from justifying such an appointment. Again, the exceptional position of a cabinet minister cannot possibly be a just criterion of a correspondingly exceptional share of natural gifts, because statesmanship is not an open profession. It was much more so in the days of pocket boroughs, when the young men of really high promise were eagerly looked for by territorial magnates and brought into Parliament and kept there to do gladiatorial battle for one or other of the great contending parties of the state. With those exceptions, parliamentary life was not, even then, an open career, for only favoured youths were admitted to compete. But as is the case in every other profession, none except those who are extraordinarily and particularly gifted are likely to succeed in parliamentary life, unless engaged in it from their early manhood onwards. Dudley North, of whom I spoke in the chapter on judges, was certainly a great success. So in recent times was Lord George Bentinck. So, in one way or another, was the Duke of Wellington. And other cases could easily be quoted of men beginning their active parliamentary life in advanced manhood and nevertheless achieving success. But as a rule, to which there are very few exceptions, statesmen consist of men who had obtained, it little matters how, the privilege of entering Parliament in early life, and of being kept there. Every cabinet is necessarily selected from a limited field. No doubt it always contains some few persons of very high natural gifts, who would have found their way to the front under any reasonably fair political regime. But it also invariably contains others who would have fallen far behind in the struggle for place and influence if all England had been admitted on equal terms to the struggle. Two selections of men occurred to me as being, on the whole, well worthy of confidence. One that the premiers began for convenience's sake with the reign of George III, their number is twenty-five, and the proportion of them who cannot claim to be much more than eminently gifted, such as Addington, Pitt is to Addington as London to Paddington, is very small. The other selection is Lord Brougham's statesman of the reign of George III. It consists of no more than 53 men, selected as the foremost statesmen in that long reign. Now of these, 11 are judges, and I may add, 7 of those judges were described in the appendix to the last chapter, viz. Lords Camden, Eldon, Erskine, Ellenborough, King, Mansfield and Thurlow. The remaining 4 are Chief Justices Burke and Gibbs, Sir William Grant and Lord Lowborough. 
Lord Brougham's list also contains the name of Lord Nelson, which will be more prominently included among the commanders, and that of Earl St. Vincent, which may remain in this chapter, for he was a very able administrator, in peace as well as a naval commander. In addition to these are the names of nine premiers, of whom one is the Duke of Wellington, whom I count here, and again among the commanders, leaving a net balance in the selection made by Lord Brougham of 31 new names to discuss. The total of the two selections, omitting the judges, is 57. The average natural ability of these men may very justly be stated as superior to class upper F. Canning, Fox, the two Pitts, Romilly, Sir Robert Walpole, whom Lord Brougham imports into his list, the Marquess of Wellesley, and the Duke of Wellington, probably exceed upper G. It will be seen how extraordinary are the relationships of these families. The kinship of the two pits, father and son, is often spoken of as a rare, if not sole, instance of high genius being hereditary, but the remarkable kinships of William Pitt were yet more widely diffused. He was not only son of a premier, but nephew of another, George Grenville, and cousin of a third, Lord Grenville. Besides this, he had the temple blood. His pedigree, which is given in the appendix to this chapter, does scant justice to his breed. The fox pedigree is also very remarkable in its connection with the Lords Holland and the Napier family, but one of the most conspicuous is that of the Marquess of Wellesley, a most illustrious statesman both in India and at home, and his younger brother, the great Duke of Wellington. It is also curious from the fact of the Marquess possessing very remarkable gifts as a scholar and critic. They distinguish him in early life and descended to his son, the late principal of New Inn Hall at Oxford, but they were not shared by his brother. Yet although the great duke had nothing of the scholar or art critic in him, he had qualities akin to both. His writings are terse and nervous, and eminently effective. His furniture, equipages and the like were characterised by unostentatious completeness and efficiency under a pleasing form. I do not intend to go seratim through the many names mentioned in my appendix. The reader must do that for himself, and he will find it well worth his while to do so. But I shall content myself here with the same convenient statistical form that I have already employed for the judges, and arguing on the same basis that the relationships of the statesmen abundantly prove the hereditary character of their genius. In addition to the English statesmen of whom I have been speaking, I thought it well to swell their scanty numbers by adding a small supplementary list, taken from various periods in other countries. I cannot precisely say how large was the area of selection from which this list was taken. I can only assure the reader that it contains a considerable proportion of the names that seemed to me the most conspicuous among these that I found described at length in ordinary small biographical dictionaries. Table 1 is displayed on the page. Summary of relationships of 35 English statesmen grouped into 30 families. Table 2 is displayed on the page with degree of kinship and the corresponding letters. First, have the ablest statesmen the largest number of able relatives? Table 1 answers this in the affirmative. There can be no doubt that its third section contains more illustrious names than the first, and that the more the reader will take the pains of analysing and weighing the relationships, the more I am sure he will find this truth to become apparent. Again, the statesmen as a whole are far more eminently gifted than the judges. Accordingly, it will be seen in Table 2, by a comparison of its column B with the corresponding column in page 61, that their relations are more rich in ability. To proceed to the next list. We see that the third section is actually longer than either the first or the second, showing that ability is not distributed at haphazard, but that it affects certain families. Thirdly, the statesman type of ability is largely transmitted or inherited. 
it would be tedious to count the instances in favour. Those to the contrary are Disraeli, Sir P. Francis, who is hardly a statesman, but rather a bitter controversialist, and Horner. In all the other 35 or 36 cases in my appendix, one or more statesmen will be found among their eminent relations. In other words, the combination of high intellectual gifts, tact in dealing with men, power of expression and debate, and ability to endure exceedingly hard work is hereditary. Table 2 proves, just as distinctly as it did in the case of the judges, that the nearer kinsmen of the eminent statesmen are far more rich in ability than the more remote. It will be seen that the law of distribution, as gathered from these instances, is very similar to what we had previously found it to be. I shall not stop here to compare that law in respect to the statesmen and the judges, for I propose to treat all the groups of eminent men, from whom the subject of my several chapters, in a precisely similar manner, and to collate the results, once for all, at the end of the book. End of chapter 7